Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To podcast. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all-non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. I'm somebody who doesn't look to politics for my leadership necessarily. I want to be a change agent. Hi, I'm Adam Kaufman, and you're listening to the Up To Podcast. I've been fortunate throughout my career to be networking and serving and working with some of the most successful and influential leaders in America. Eight years ago, we started Up To as a live event series, which showcased leaders who I thought were as humble as they are successful. And for me, the humility piece is very important as we identify these leaders who can hopefully inspire others. Over the years, I've interviewed trailblazers from the fields of medicine, business, from the military, from nonprofits, from politics, and more. We really focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives, and we found there is a real thirst to explore their hearts and their minds in maybe atypical ways. So time and again, attendees of UPTO have asked us to expand the event so that more people could benefit and participate in the special dialogue taking place. And that's why we started this podcast. Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, all-state dual athlete at St. Ignatius High School, starting wide receiver and academic All-American for the Ohio State Buckeyes. He played in the NFL for the Indianapolis Colts, catching passes thrown by all-time great Peyton Manning. He then went to Stanford Business School, considered one of the finest business schools in America. He then worked for a venture-backed company in Arizona as an executive. And now he's a first-term U.S. congressman representing his hometown in Ohio. He's a husband and a father with one young son, and all of this before age 35. Anthony Gonzalez, what have you been up to? (laughs) No, well, first off, thanks for having me, Adam. And uh, yeah, you know, I don't know, I I was very fortunate, have always been very fortunate to have great parents who could provide uh, some incredible opportunities for me. And I I always try to take advantage of them, and uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But um, you know, honored obviously to to be doing what I'm doing now, which is to represent the great state of Ohio from the 16th district. Just thrilled to be here, and honored to be a part of the podcast. Awesome. Well, welcome to the Up Two Podcast. We're thrilled to have you. I thought about arranging this discussion in Washington D.C., but I thought you might be more relaxed doing it here uh, in Ohio. Do you think? That was a good decision. That was the right call. <laughs> okay. <laughs> DC is every bit as messy as uh, everybody thinks it is. Oh, and I know you have like every minute scheduled while you're there. Yes. Uh, one time you and I tried to have like a meeting, so to speak, just while you were walking from one point to another. It's it's amazing how hard you guys work. Has it been as you would expect it to be, or were there any really big surprises in your first few months? 
In most ways, it is what I expected in, in the vast majority of ways. I was expecting a lot of dysfunction. It is, in fact, dysfunctional. I was expecting to be busy, as you alluded to. I'm still getting used to, to being triple booked at Amazing. all times. And then asking my scheduler, so which one of these am I going to? And her saying, oh, you're going to all of them, Wow, which is interesting. In those ways, it's what I expected. There are some positive surprises and some, some negative surprises. On the positive side, I think the vast majority of the young, younger folks, and not young by age, but young by tenure, who are in Congress, I think are committed to, to doing this the way that you would want it to be done. Uh, they want to be bipartisan. They want to work on solutions to help their district, help their region. Those folks, I put myself in that category, don't always get the national publicity. We're not exactly flamethrowers. We're mm-hmm. not, you know, we don't have the three million Twitter followers. But I think generally folks of goodwill. And, and so that's, that's, good to hear. that's been a, a very, very both strong parties positive. Both parties, to? yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I have friends on both sides, probably equal friends on both sides just for being around and, and uh, just visiting with people and talking about priorities and what's important to them. So that's interesting. You're saying it's not the more senior people and not necessarily age, but the newer members, the more recent the newcomers, I guess, is the best word. And do you think that's because they don't have like years and years of lobbying ties or is it just they're not as attuned to the leadership? You know, so I've been thinking a lot about this. I think what you have is when you're younger, uh, you're hungry, you're just you're trying to get things done. As you rise in the ranks, like the leadership ranks, it actually benefits you to have partisanship, to have the, the clear divides because that's how you that's how you acquire your power is you you create the divide you win and then you elevate um, and so the folks in leadership and this isn't anything, anything against anybody personally but folks in leadership I believe actually benefit from that dynamic whereas the rank and file again I'm I'm rank and file for those of you who don't know what rank and file is these are the less senior newer members of congress they're not in leadership positions uh, the rank and file we don't benefit from from chaos. We do not benefit from terrible partisanship. We benefit from collaboration. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's that push that's kind of from, from top down and bottoms up that, that I think uh, makes it so difficult in many ways. Okay. So let's back up a little bit. I know your father was born in Cuba. Yes. So you're second generation American. What's your mother's heritage? German Catholic, Cincinnati, uh, born and raised. Born in the U.S. Yep. So how has heritage played out in your family if at all, I love asking people this question, whether it's food traditions or holidays or your faith or now your policy pursuits. How has heritage played out? It's been huge. I mean, so my father's mother, my abuela, before she passed away, she was my best friend. I mean, she, she lived with us from the time her husband passed away. I, was in, I think I was in the third grade, uh, maybe a little older. In any event, she was in Miami. She moved back to Cleveland and uh, lived in, in our house. And so... All of my conversations about what it was like leaving Cuba, about growing up uh, as an immigrant family in Cincinnati, like those were all with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it really shaped uh, just my— It's great she lived of, with you. Yeah, it, and it shaped my perspective on how fortunate we are to live in this country. It shaped, mm-hmm. my, it shaped my politics for sure. But it also informed the food we eat, the music I listen to, the places I go. Love and if, that. Yeah, we were black beans and rice and— uh, some sort of Cuban meal every single night. So That's wonderful. And do you think that heritage, and it is so terrific that she was that close to you physically to bring that to the next generation, do you think that heritage has also now taken uh, an effect into how you decide on policy positions or even priorities? 
Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, we were, uh, when you escape a place like Cuba, when in the circumstances they did, this was 1960, Castro had taken over and was literally imprisoning or executing people all over the country and, mm. and people that were friends of theirs and family members of ours. Uh, and so they escaped, um, came here after getting their visas processed, took a couple months, came to the U.S., and uh, have always identified with a more conservative leaning just because mm-hmm. when you have something like the Castro regime take over right. and, and implement communism, it it, uh, it pushes you in the other direction. That's why Miami has often been so That's right. And the Cu- Cuban-Americans in particular tend to be right-leaning, especially mm-hmm. the older generation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was just always a part of when we talked politics, that was a big part of it. And, uh, and we were also... Grew up in a very religious home, and and um, you know things like the pro life movement were very important, are very important to our family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, those are kind of more conservative, right leaning right. policies. Boy, one of my most vivid memories as a youngster growing up and shaping my own politics was the Elian Gonzalez moment. Uh, you're younger than me, but I suspect you remember that as well. Such a a big moment. I do. Yeah, that was. I was actually in Miami when that was happening. Whoa! I forget what we were doing there. It may have been around Easter because we always went down there for Easter. But I remember my aunt coming in, you know, I think they raided the home at night or something. Um, and she was, you know, somewhat hysterical. She was a, I wouldn't call her an activist, but um, she was involved in kind of Miami slash Cuban politics. Yeah, passionate about passionate it. Passionate about it, right. yeah. And yeah, that was a, that was interesting. I don't remember, candidly, having a particular opinion on it. Mm. But I just remember the the picture in particular. I mean, right. I can see it in my head. I wonder where that fella is now. He's uh, yeah, an adult know. somewhere. I'm sure we can find him. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Elian Gonzalez, he was a youngster. I'm, I'm thinking about now your athletic career as well. And all of us men, when we were boys, we imitated the, the Super Bowl moment in our backyard or for me, the World Cup moment. I was a soccer player. Was there a point early in your playing days as a youngster when it became clear to you that, wow, I'm actually like pretty good at this? Or was it always something that was evident? You know, I always, I, 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 the only thing I could judge was who I was competing with, right? Because you don't, when you're a kid, you don't have perspective for, you know, what everybody across the country is doing. No. And so I could only see kind of in my own line of sight. And sure. I knew that uh, when I competed, when I was on teams, that uh, I tended to kind of be in the, the top tier, if you will. Well, unless I was playing with my older brothers, in which case I was last and sure. I was trying to, to prove myself. That probably made you better in the long run. Though. Yeah, no, I was I was lucky. And they included me, uh, which was helpful. What are the age differences? My brother Joe is three years older. My brother Nick is five years older. Okay, so that's significant. When, yeah. when you're like 15, 10, and 8, I mean, that's a big deal on the playing field. Yeah, I matured quickly. So, like, you know, I uh, as as... You know, I'm, I'm a bald man, and my my hair, which is <laughs> absolutely wonderful. Yeah, which we, is, we both have faces for podcasting. That's right; it's perfect. To give you an example, I started losing my hair my sophomore year in high school, and so I was just always, from a maturity standpoint, a little bit ahead of the game. And in that sense, not not in a positive way, but <laughs> but overall, though, it was back to the question. It became clear that you're pretty good at sports, so that could be a path. I don't know if you thought about the pros at that early stage. I did, I did. So I knew. Here's the thing with, with the NFL, and you don't really realize this until you get there, but the skills aren't any different from what you learn in middle school and high school. And so, like, I played with some guys in high school 
uh, who, from a skill standpoint, are just as skilled as anybody in the NFL. Hmm. But they weren't fast enough. Uh, you know, maybe they they were a four eight. And those 40. are just God given talents. Yeah, and so I always knew that I was fast because I, you know, you can measure that. And so I always said to myself, okay, I've I've been given this gift of speed. So as long as I can develop my skill set, I should be able to take this somewhere. Hmm. I didn't know where exactly. Sure. But, but I do remember in high school thinking, okay, I think I had ran I run ran a forty yard dash and I got the time and I thought, okay, if I can develop my skills, I can probably take this far. And then I like your strategy because in. College, you played on Ohio State's team that had a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. And in the pros, you were a receiver for Peyton Manning, considered to be the best quarterback of all time. So was that always your strategy to have the best quarterbacks throwing to you? Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. No, it's uh, say sometimes you get lucky. I mean, I'll go, I'll go even one further. So was lucky to play with Troy Smith. My high school quarterback was Brian Hoyer. Oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> uh, Peyton Manning. And then my coaches, Chuck Kyle's a Hall of Fame coach, Jim Tressel's a Hall of Fame coach, and Tony Dungy's a Hall of Fame coach. So I um, and you had nothing to do. I, I guess you, to, you, I guess you could pick where you went to college. So that's really impressive, though. That I roster think I just got of, lucky. of yeah. teaching, teaching you and mentoring you and coaching you. Yeah, but it's helped honestly later in life. You know, you think through what kind of a leader do you want to be? How do you want to conduct yourself? Yes, I have these incredible examples that I always draw on. I always draw on those. It was terrific to see the photo you shared on social media. I think you're one guest at the first inaugural. Excuse me, not the uh, the State of the Union address. You brought one of your coaches, right? That's right. Yeah, I brought Jim Tressel, and uh, that was so fitting because he's one of the first people that I ever told I wanted to do politics, and this was when I was in college. Oh, so you knew for a while I was going to be asking you about that. Yeah, uh, he had—I didn't know exactly what or how or, you know, all these things, but he had us fill out these goal sheets, and they were really comprehensive. So he had a a sheet—I mean, it's probably, you know, larger than an average sheet of paper— and it had the different dimensions that he wanted you to set goals for. So mm. it was, I'll miss some of these, but it was spiritual family, athletic health, uh, career, uh, there were a couple others, community. And you had to set goals for each of those subcategories. Mm. And that's then what would spark the conversation. And then you'd meet with you, each player, and he'd go through your goal sheet. And it was broken down into short, medium, and long-term. And then my long-term goals were always about having impact in the community and helping Cleveland, Northeast Ohio. And politics was always kind of what we talked about for that. Wonderful. He's an awesome guy. You've been around significant leaders in business. We just talked about in sports, now in politics. Who are some of your favorite leaders, either that you've worked with, who you've worked with, or who you've admired from afar? Great question. Uh, so, I mean, the ones we just talked about are definitely, to me, the strongest leaders. So I've, I'm somebody who doesn't look to politics for my leadership necessarily, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be a change agent within politics, but I think most people, me included, would look at it and say, this isn't working so well, you know, things need to change. What I draw on for that is those experiences with Coach Tressel, with Tony Dungy, who have totally different styles, but can get the most out of teams and people in a way that uh, is is pretty special. Mm. You know, the, uh, other names that won't mean anything to anybody, Tom Moore was my offensive coordinator with the Indianapolis Colts. If coordinators went into the Hall of Fame, he would definitely go in. Mm. Uh, just an old-school guy. You should People should look him up. Do you stay in touch with him? Teams. Yeah. He's old now. I mean, he's, I don't know how quite old he is, but he's coached a lot of the best players in the history of the game. And he was kind of a crusty, uh, you know, old Tough football guy. Co- Oh, yeah. No, you 
He had one compliment. He, if he told you something was excellent, you knew you actually did something good. He wasn't mm-hmm. one of these false compliment guys. And so, you know, that direction and and being so forward with what he wanted was very helpful for me. And I admired it. Well, hopefully one of his kids or grandkids can teach him how to download this podcast so he can hear I'll send your, it to your, him. your compliments. <laughs> what about now in Washington or even in your business life? Any not famous but important to you leaders that you learned from? Yeah, so there's a guy uh, named Reese Duca who runs a firm called Investment Group of Santa Barbara. Nobody knows knows what it is, but he uh, objectively is probably the the best investor in the history of Stanford's business school. So Reese is one of those guys. He started, I think he started with $30,000 out of business school. It was all his money. And he has one partner, Tim Bliss. And they've never taken outside capital. That $30,000 is north of $2 billion today. And so if you do the math on that, compounds at about 25% annually. Mm-hmm. And how did you get exposed? They're to just incredible. They were so they were the VCs who brought me into the startup that I worked at in California before uh, getting into into Congress and basically their model is they've done 34 private companies in the course of their their history. And they do some public investing, but 34 private companies, 32 of them have had successful exits. Wow. And, and so their hit rate is unbelievable. They take big ownership stakes. In my day job, I think, you know, I spend a lot of time in VC, and that's a pretty high success rate. Yeah, no, it's unbelievable. And it's it's uh, things that you wouldn't think of. So they've been doing this for a long time, like Oregon Trail. Remember Oregon mm-hmm. Trail? So that was their company, mm. um, the learning company, which was uh, oh, Reader yeah, Rabbit that. and yep. all those guys. That was them. You should have PJ talk to them. Yeah, so they do, uh, they do a lot of vertical software businesses and do it really well. Well, speaking of that time in your life, did you go to... Stanford GSB thinking you wanted to get into business or was it just a feather in the cap for other pursuits? Or what were you thinking at that time, considering you're now a member of Congress, not in business? So when I went there, I thought I would stay in business for a long time. Mm. That was my plan. My goal, so I grew up here in Northeast Ohio. Father runs a steel plant. I knew manufacturing. I knew steel. I knew sort of blue-collar industries. I wanted to go out west and develop an additional toolkit or an additional skill set in the technology sector so that ultimately, when I came back to Ohio, when I brought it home, uh, that I could apply those learnings. That was kind of, that was my big mm-hmm. my big thought when the I plan. went out to Stanford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go out there, learn the skills, get involved in the tech sector, and then bring that back to Cleveland. Did you meet your wife out there? I did. Okay, she was a swimmer there. So, if for no other reason, that was a good reason to be in Stanford. Yeah, no, I mean, if if that's all that happened, it was a <laughs> right, rousing success. Right, right. So, in anyway, that that was the plan, and then. You know, for whatever reason, I felt the calling to jump into politics sooner than I other, otherwise would have. My initial plan was to run businesses for a while and then mm-hmm. go do it later in life. Right. Opportunistic, though. So let's talk about that for a minute. Once maybe the idea first came about, was it a quick decision? Yes, I'm jumping in. Or was it a longer, methodical process talking to maybe your family and other advisors, maybe a lot of prayer? Like I like knowing how achievers make big decisions. So it was everything you just said. The first thing you have to, the family has to be on board. Right. When I first started thinking about this, I talked to somebody in DC and uh, that person said, hey, look, you've done some things in your life. I'm just telling you, this will be the hardest thing you ever do. Wow. And I thought- Almost talking you out of it or just preparing you? No, just preparing. Just saying, this will be really challenging. And I kind of I understood what he was saying, but I didn't know exactly how it would be. Turns out the reason it's the hardest, at least for me, 
is because of the toll it takes on your family. Mm. I mean, it takes a tremendous toll on a family to have, you know, negative ads being run on you and the travel. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why this is tough for especially young families. Just the media scrutiny. Yeah, the media scrutiny. I mean, it doesn't bother me, candidly, at all, but it can get to members of the family. Understandably. That's a challenge. So we vetted that. My wife and I talked a lot about it. We prayed about it. We kind of said yes and no about 10 different times over the course of three weeks. Okay, you did. That's interesting. Yeah, and then— So it wasn't an obvious conclusion. No. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's too big of a commitment, and it was too unknown. I wasn't from politics to, I think, just, just run in there, you know, full bore. So we really took our time, and, uh, you know, it's like anything. You talk to—my thing was I want to surround myself with the experts. So I talked to as many people— as humanly possible, who had run campaigns, who had been involved in politics. I talked to families. I talked to party people. I talked to you know other everybody I could. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, uh, we kind of sat down one morning. I will never forget this. And my wife just said, you, "I think you need to do it. If, wow. you, if you don't do it, you're going to regret it forever. I think you just need to do it." And so. We kind of said, are you sure? She knew I wanted to. And if she said, I'm not comfortable with this, you probably wouldn't have done it, it sounds like. No, you can't. I mean, it's, it's uh, again, it's, you see, you know, a politician, you think that is the person, you know, who's running and that's the person whose name's on the door and all that. And that is true. But behind that, uh, at least in our case, behind that is a family. Right. And so you, you can only do this effectively if you have the full support. Hello, up to listeners. Right now, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, a full-service corporate law firm with attorneys throughout Ohio and in Washington, D.C. I'd also like to emphasize how selective we are about organizations with whom we choose to partner for the Up To podcast, and it's with much enthusiasm that we do partner with this law firm that is close to 120 years old. Calfee's mission has been to provide meaningful legal and business counsel to entrepreneurs and investors, private business owners and nonprofits, public corporations. I've referred many successful entrepreneurs and investors to Calfee knowing how well they'd be taken care of. And it's for those reasons that I would encourage you to visit their website, calfee.com. That's C-A-L-F-E-E.com. Thank you very much to Calfee. Preparing for this discussion, I was thinking about your election night and how thrilling that must have been. Is that the only thing that comes close to the elation of like scoring a touchdown on national TV, or is that season in your life totally done and there's nothing that replaces that? Is there is there anything that gives you that euphoria? Well, so having my son by far, right? Like that's if scoring a touchdowns at 10, having a son and seeing him look into your eyes for the first time is like 130. Oh, right? like wonderful. It's, that I've never had anything even come close to. The difference between politics is it kind of happens slowly. Like you're just, you know, CNN's not tracking our race. We're literally hitting refresh on all the county boards of election <laughs> right. websites as good, the, good the votes come in. I was doing that for your race that night too. Yeah, we could have sent you the link. We the had New York little, Times wasn't highlighting that as one of the likelihoods of winning big data. That's right. So races. so anyway, that's what we were doing and we we thought we felt comfortable and then you know, I think like the Associated Press sent out a tweet that said we won and I thought, well, I guess we did it. Do you remember what time that was? Probably around 9:30. That's pretty good. That's kind of early. Yeah, it was it was a short night, but it was fun and it um you know, that 
unlike scoring a touchdown, that you feel like it all all of a sudden it all felt worth it. A weight feels like it's kind of been lifted mm. off your shoulders, mm-hmm. only temporarily because you wake up the next morning and the weight's 30 times bigger because now you know you're doing the people's work and you better deliver because you made a lot of promises. Of course, expectations are, are high. on you. Right. Yep. And it's important work. You got to do a good job. I remember having a group dinner with you close to election time. Maybe it was one month away, a little bit less maybe. And the time from election night to swearing in is like six weeks or something. And you weren't being optimistic. I was the one saying, oh, you're going to win. Let's spend some time together between election day and swearing in. But I bet your world totally changed after election day. Yeah, so I I was the idiot who thought I was going to get some time to myself. I, you, yeah. you told me that. I wouldn't have called you an idiot, but I yeah. was like, man, he has no idea what he's in for. <laughs> no, it's literally, you know, fly to D.C. three days later, interview a million people, put a staff together, orientation, back to the district, get your offices set in the district, back to D.C. I mean, it's just— Even basics, like what hallway do I go down? Yeah, picking your office, right. uh, who to hire. I mean, it's— Day one stuff, but there's a sprint because, you know, you want to get the best staff and the best staff is in high demand. So mm-hmm. everybody is just mm-hmm. running a million miles an hour. And you're on uh, the financial services or banking committee and science and technology, correct? Yes. Now, how does that work? Do you request those or they assign according to something in your district or your background? How, how does that process work? So that is its own campaign in many ways. So uh, the way it works is the Speaker of the House determines how many seats each party has on the different committees. So that's Nancy Pelosi says, Republicans, you have X seats on financial services. And then we lobby our leadership to get on the committees we want. And the ones I wanted were financial services and science-based and tech. Oh, so you got the ones you wanted. Yeah, and that was uh, a little bit of a surprise, but um, but was really excited for it. Uh, Financial services, obviously, we have a ton here in Northeast Ohio. Right. Big banks. Big banks. But Isn't uh, that a committee, excuse me, where usually a member is only on that committee and not on other committees? Yes. So that's considered a quote-unquote A committee. And if you're on an A and you're in the minority, you usually only have one. But uh, I lobbied pretty hard, again, to get on science, space, and tech for a lot of reasons. One, my background, but two, we have NASA Glenn right in our backyard. Terrific. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that I'm somebody who's fighting for that and and uh, our sort of 21st century economy here in Northeast Ohio. My daughter interned there last spring, senior year in high school, and she absolutely loved NASA. Awesome place. Opened up her eyes to a lot of new opportunities that I don't even think a lot of Northeast Ohioans outside that workplace know what goes on there. I didn't realize how big it was. Exactly. I went back there a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it's a full-on campus. Mm. It's awesome. And the director, Jana Cavani, incredible. One of the things, I'm changing gears here. I told you the time would go fast of us talking. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Congressman, you're an optimistic person. I love that about your personality. You're serious, but you're optimistic. What gives you the most hope in your day-to-day life? You seem very hopeful. Two things I would say. One, the capacity that Congress has to do good work. So it is a body that has the power, has the ability to do great work on behalf of our country. Just incredible work. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't right now, but it has that capacity. A lot of people say Congress is broken. Yeah, and I'd raise my hand for that one. I think it is. So there's, there's the capacity for good combined with what I have found to be 
incredibly reasonable members on both sides of the aisle who are coming in with an attitude of, hey, let's stop all this nonsense mm-hmm. and actually try to work together to make big solutions. And that those two things combined uh, give me a lot of hope. It'll be hard, but they give me hope. What gives me hope, frankly, is seeing someone like you choose to go into public service. A lot of accomplished Stanford Business School graduates would you know, follow the business path, and that's fine. But I really am pleased and excited that someone like you is representing a district in Congress, and hopefully others will follow in that lead who maybe were in the business arena. Do you ever think about who you're role modeling for? I know you're young, and you probably think I'm not a role model, but do you ever think about who might be watching you? I'm somebody who who believes that it's important to see people doing things uh, that you want to do if you're a kid, right? So I I always had role models in the athletic field and, and in the business world. Um, so I do think it's important to see see role models. And, Absolutely. You know, I, I know my son is, is going to be looking at what his dad's doing. Uh, so that's important to me more than anything else. But also, as the first Hispanic member of Congress from the state of Ohio, I think it's important to show other Hispanics and, and minorities that, hey, you can you can do this here. Look at the story of your own life. I mean, your father was not even born in this country, and now, one generation later, you're a member of Congress. I like to ask our up two guests if you could go back in time and talk to the younger version of yourself, maybe like the 21-year-old version of yourself. Now, when I ask a 65-year-old that question, it's one thing. So that age is closer to your current age, but still, do you think the younger you could have or should have known something or taken advantage of another opportunity? You know, if I were to give myself, my 21-year-old self, some advice, probably be grow up. <laughs> grow up? <laughs> grow up. No, I mean, it, it would... Uh, you're, you told us you're always mature beyond your years. Yeah, no, that's true. No, I mean, the other thing, honestly, I'd probably say be a little bit more charitable with yourself when you make mistakes. I was pretty hard on myself, especially in the NFL. I dealt with some a lot of setbacks due to injury. Right. And, Mentally, emotionally, I, I did not handle that very well. Do you think that can be transferred today to maybe you lose a legislative battle, but don't be too hard on yourself, or you, you disappoint a senator from Ohio on signing on to a bill that he wished you hadn't, or I'm making this up? No, I think so. I'm, I'm definitely, I mean, look, I, I have very, very high standards for myself, for our office, et cetera, but... Honestly, that experience in the NFL, it in the long run helped me a lot with with these sorts of things because the reality is you're just, you'll go crazy if you're chasing perfection all day. What advice would you give to a young professional maybe starting out in whatever her or his career pursuit is? The way I think about being a young professional is you don't really know exactly what you want to do, most likely. Some people do, but I, I think that's the exception, not the norm. So when you're young, I think the goal is to expose yourself to as many career paths and opportunities as possible. Interesting. Then as you're experiencing these things, you will naturally fall into, oh, I like this. This feels like the right thing. I, I like the people. I like the activity. I like what I'm doing. And then I think you narrow your scope and, and you focus. So it could be through internships or just talking to your parents, friends in a line of work or something like that. I think it's more of like an exploratory strategy when you're young and then a very deliberate strategy as you get older. Achieving balance. Is it a myth or is it achievable? I personally think it's a myth. I'm always working and always having fun, much to my wife's chagrin. 
but that's just how I'm wired. Do you think about structuring balance or just doing what you can each day? How do, how do you think about balance? Well, I have very clear priorities. I make sure that my time, my schedule reflects those priorities. Uh, and so the number one priority in my life for the rest of my life will be my wife and my kids. Yeah. I make sure that, you know, we have the time set. We're doing this because family comes first. Love and, that. And that's that's how I was raised, and I think that's appropriate, and I know that's the best thing for my family. So, so family comes first, work comes second, and I put everything into that. Everything else kind of kind of goes where it goes. Everything else falls into a place once you know what your priorities are. That's right. I don't get bent out of shape about it. I've always said, like, I'll I won't be able to have maybe the the robust social life that. That maybe I'd want because I, I have this unique job and I have a family that I that your I, job doesn't end at five p.m. No, it doesn't. It it, uh, it almost never ends, and so so that's fine. I'm I'm totally happy with that trade off. I'm I'm as happy today as I've ever been in my life. I have an incredible wife. A what a blessing kid, to and, be able to say that. And a job that that I'm honored to have. So I've been blessed. Well, we are honored and blessed, frankly, to have you with us today. So, Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, thank you very much for being with us today on the Up2 podcast. Thanks for having me. Anthony Gonzalez was so authentic today. These are my big takeaways from the conversation. Big decisions can take a toll on your family, so involve them in the process. Second, Talk to as many experts as possible when making a big decision. Third, the potential impact of having important role models in your life. Four, be a little more charitable with yourself. Don't be too hard on yourself. I thought that was refreshing. Finally, early in your career, try to experience as many different things and as many types of people as possible. Be exploratory in your pursuits. I'm Adam Kaufman, and I'd like to thank you for joining us on this Up To podcast. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and I encourage you to subscribe to our new show wherever you listen to podcasts or visit us at uptofoundation.org. A special thank you to the law firm of Calfee, Halter, and Griswold for their role in making this podcast possible. Visit them at www.calfee.com for further information. And to our friends at Town Hall, you can learn more about their restaurants by visiting townhallohiocity.com. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producers, Bridget Coyne and Sarah Wilgrub, our account manager, Connor Standish, and our audio engineers, Eric Coltnow and Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman. Thank you for listening to the Up To podcast.